Good morning slash evening. Welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China-Africa podcast. I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I'm still working on the whole finding a co-host thing. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duru, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. Today we are again looking at China-Zambia relations, and we have a returning guest who we are thrilled to have on, Mr. Kumukulani Firi, who just finished his Master's in Science of Management from Leeds University after working for a Chinese green energy company in Zambia, Sunshine Kaidi New Energy Group. Mr. Furry went to China as a student, and he speaks fluent Mandarin after studying civil engineering in Guangxi University. He is uniquely situated to talk about the Zambia-China relationship, and I'm delighted to have him on the pod again. Kumbu, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much, Robert. Would you mind telling us about what brought you to China and your experiences there? Well, um, to start with, um, when I was still in high school, I, I never thought one day I would find myself in China. <laughs> Basically, my finding, uh, <laughs> yeah, finding myself in China came more or less by, by chance, so to say. Because school, I thought of going to do my school in South Africa where I enrolled at Deban Institute of Technology in Civil Engineering. Now, during the first two weeks of um, South Africa, I came back for a recess. We had a one week just before the official opening of the school. And I, I found that there was a scholarship that was uh, public to study in China. And I just wanted to try it anyway. So I pushed in my application later. And then within the two weeks that I was still around, I think two to three weeks, I, I got a chance to interview scholarship and I was awarded the scholarship. And then after that, all that remained was to prepare myself to go back to China and I never went back to South Africa. And that's how I found myself in China. Basically, that's um, uh, what I mean, how I found myself in China. In terms of my experiences in China, I would say well, because I went to China when I was still perhaps trying to realize who I was. And um, I think you understand that the period, you know, between 18 and 20, that's the, a very critical time in the life of any person. And basically, I would say that my maturity, actually, I, 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 I attained maturity whilst in China. So... Mm all the mistakes and all the discovering of myself happened when i was in china that's the the most critical part about my experience in china and i think that that is what has perhaps molded my life now because i find myself you know having a lot of chinese traits in me you know the way i want to look at things and stuff like that <laughs> you know it's it's it's, it's 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 been helpful somehow and Sometimes perhaps it comes at, as a disadvantage, but I think all in all, it, it has given me a chance to, you know, to learn both sides of the world. You know, more especially that in Zambia, 
you know, from um, elementary school uh, all the way up to high school, we more or less like follow the Western, you know, um, education style and mm. everything like that. Yeah, and I think even the culture, like right now, for those of us who are brought up in the cities in Africa, you find that the music you listen to, the movies you watch, they are all English, Western movies, you know. So mm. it's like, you know, all that time our lives have been molded to, to you know, to, to behave like a Western or something like that. So when I found myself in China at the most critical time in my life, it <laughs> changed the way I look at things, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, my 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 experiences in China were, you know, at first it was perhaps uh, some kind of some cultural shock where, mm. you know, uh, certain things just came by surprise. We just landed in Beijing. We went to the restaurant and people gave me chopsticks and I was so surprised that in, in the world, you can go to a restaurant that has got no uh, fork and knife, <laughs> and they gave me chopsticks, and I said, how am I going to deal with this, you know? <laughs> but, well, <laughs> you know, um, eventually, you know, within the same night, I managed to get around the chopsticks and wow. managed to eat the food. It, yeah. Very and, uh, impressive, you know, A. <laughs> it took me a while to figure out the whole chopstick thing. I think when you're hungry, you know, you, you get to learn very fast. I think I was very, very hungry, you know, after flying for more than 19 hours. So, okay, and this is what I have to use. I just had to look at how other people are using it. And every people, I mean, everyone was so surprised. I managed to use it within, I think, 10, 15 minutes of trying. You know, the other colleague of mine that was traveling with me, he, he couldn't do anything. He ended up using his hands to, to, to feed, you know, so... I mean, <laughs> and those are some of the experiences. <laughs> and then, you know, when uh, we were learning Chinese, because, you know, Chinese was a language that I had no idea about, you know. I would say in Zambia, we, 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 we know, we, we're close to French-speaking countries like Congo, DR, and I was brought up on the Copa Bell, that is just, you know, right at the border with Congo. So we we had a chance of perhaps learning a little bit of French. Mm. So, you know, French was a bit closer to me. And I think if I went perhaps to France, it was going to be easy for me to, to adapt. But then Chinese was completely out of, you know, what I <laughs> thought of in my life. And here I was seated in a Chinese class, you know, waiting to be taught. At the beginning, I thought people were just shouting at each other, and I was like, what, what the hell are they you know, talking about? <laughs> yeah, I remember getting on a train from Beijing to Guangxi, and it took like 36 hours, and for, for almost half the, the journey, I, I we couldn't even know what to do, where to find food, and when we tried to speak English to people, they were just smiling at us, you know, something like that. And nobody thought of, you know, till, you know, telling us where the, the, the restaurant was or something, you know. Yeah, so the, um, the experience, I mean, the experience was quite, um, quite interesting because um, within one month of learning Chinese, we found ourselves, you know, negotiating for prices at the market, mm. you know. And I think that is what started exciting me now to learn more so that, I could communicate more, you know. Um, um, you know, uh, I was brought up in a in a friendly family, and for, 
for me, communication is very important mm. because I felt just because I could not speak Chinese, perhaps that was hindering me from expressing myself the way I wanted to because I could see a lot of people, you know, they, they were quite curious to, to understand us, you know, being black in China at that particular time in Guangxi was something that was perhaps, I would say, you know, that people had no experience about. Mm. So wherever we went, people would come, they want to touch us, you know, they want, they want to ask us questions where we come from, what we eat and everything. And I think communication was hindering that. <laughs> so I went flat out and, you know, started cramming and cramming and, and, and going out and speaking to people. And that's how, you know, I ended up learning the Chinese. I started dropping my class at school and, you know, winning prizes and all those things, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was very, very interesting for me. Could, could you let our <laughs> listeners then, know um, what it's like to learn Chinese? Um, it, you You are one of the few guests that really did a good job of it at a later point in their life. What did you do? What are the strategies that you should employ? Are the, and does it make a difference being African when learning Chinese? Uh, well, I, I don't think it difference. You know, it doesn't matter where you come from. And, you know, give you an example. You know, if, if you in right now, most of the successive um, master of ceremony those outside China, actually, you know, there's one guy from France and then there's that guy from Canada. And mm. I think there's a lady who should be it Italy or something like that. And then we also have that African guy. I don't know whether he's from Nigeria. Uh, Nigeria, how good. Who sings a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah how good. You know, yeah. So when you look at it, I think it, it's the attitude that you employ, you know. Mm. I think the secret about learning Chinese is within the first few weeks of you getting in touch with a Chinese teacher or something. Mm. You know, that is very, very important because the foundation for Chinese is right at the beginning where they're teaching you the tones, you know, and all those things, which are not there in English, of course. I think French has, but not English, you know. German also has the tones and stuff like that, but not English, you know. Yeah, so that is the most critical part. The moment you miss the first few weeks of learning Chinese, then your Chinese pronunciation and everything are just going to be, you know, bad or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And then you also need to draw your interest. You know, uh, I think, like, like in, you know, I, 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 I to China and I just found myself in that me to perhaps want to learn very quickly or that desire that I had, you know, to let other people understand who I was, you know, because maybe those who are in, who, who are in bigger cities at that time, like if you were in Beijing, it was a bit different. But for those of us who went down south, where in our entire school, we were only like 14 Africans, you know, it was a bit different because wherever you go, people were seeing you perhaps for the very first time. Mm. So they, they were getting curious and everything. So, you know, you just have to speak to them. You know, you can't really shun them away. And then if you're in Beijing, perhaps every day you are in the midst of other foreigners, you know, there's no excitement because they've seen a lot of blacks, whites and everything. It was different, you know, it was very different. So I think that 
what triggered the attitude. You know, I wanted to learn and I wanted to communicate to these people. And I think that really helped me a lot. But for somebody who wants to learn, I think basically it's your attitude. What, 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 what's your attitude right at the beginning? How far do you want to go with this language? You know, you have to love the culture. That's one of the things. Mm. If you don't love the culture, then basically you miss it completely. So for me, I fell in love with their food. I fell in love with the culture. I almost attended every function that they organized at oh. the school. I wanted to see how these people are doing things, you know. Mm. I started watching TV, looking at, you know, the shang shang and everything like that. You know, so that I could just understand what is this culture because I I, I was like I'm gonna stay with these people at least for five years. You know, mm. so I really needed to become part of that you know culture and everything, and that really helped me to learn. Oh, I want to interrupt. What scholarship did you get? Was it one of the um, Chinese government scholarships um, for five thousand African students for five years? I or was it um, a a uh, university scholarship just for Guangxi. I we want to know the the mechanics of this scholarship. Okay, um, I I wouldn't know if that was part of the five thousand or something. But what I know is that um, you know since early nineteen seventies, I think when China was building the Tazara railway line mm. in Zambia, China started uh, China the Chinese government and the Zambian government decided to have a joint scholarship to support, you know, Zambian students to study in China. Uh-huh. And ever since, every year, Zambians have been going to China to study, you know? So I know people who went on the same scholarship, like my scholarship, but they went there in the early 1980s, some in the in 1970s. I know of such kind of people. Early 90s, every, every year people have been going there. So basically, this scholarship is called, is called the Joint China-Zambia um, Scholarship, something like that. And it's been administered by the Minister of Education and the Chinese Embassy in Zambia. Terrific, terrific. Thank you so much for clarifying that. Um, one of the things that we want to do on, on the pod is to try and take the sort of broad China-Africa statements and narrow them to specifics. So people know there's this specific scholarship, which I don't even know about, and maybe they might want to apply to it in the future. That's great. Thank you so much for that information. It's uh, fine. And, and before I interrupted you, you're talking about the need to put yourself into the Chinese experience, to give yourself a Chinese life, and, and your fascination with Chinese culture. What about what about um, other foreign students? Do they do they take the same shine to Chinese culture and language that you did? You know, I'll I'll tell you something that is very interesting about my intake in Guangxi. Mm. You know, um, out of the fourteen of us who were there, two were um, um, girls from Central African Republic, and you'd be surprised that four of the guys in that intake married Chinese women. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, I'm sure you, you, you understand the kind of integration that we ended up having because mm. of being a minority, you know, in the midst of all these Chinese. You see mm. what I mean? So it, 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 it helped us to, you know, to, to integrate very, very well. And I think because um, um, we, we were like, for that intake, we were like the, the first ones who came in, 
we, we initially found two guys, but they were just, you know, finishing their studies and leaving. So amongst those who are going to stay for the next four or five years, we became like the earliest intake, you know, among the Africans. So basically, <laughs> our experience ended up, you know, spilling over to those who were coming in. And the kind, the way of life, the way we were leading our lives, you know, determined how other people were going to lead their lives. Mm. And surprisingly, all of us ended up with Chinese women, you know, <laughs> just like that. Yeah. <laughs> But there, there, yeah. that's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders to to set the standard for others to follow. Yeah, but you know, for for me, it was I, I've always tried to be as natural as I can. I don't want to walk somebody's, you know. Mm. Uh, the, 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 I mean, I, I don't want to take somebody's responsibilities. Basically, I was just trying to be who I was, you know. For me, it was like this is my life because I the moment I step into China. All those, you know, stereotypes I had about China had to leave me, you mm. know, because before I went to China, I was told a lot about China, you know, China is all about Kung Fu, China <laughs> is all about this. I expected to see those things, but in the first month of being in China, I saw no Kung Fu anywhere, you know, I, I started asking my, 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 my friends around, where can I find the, 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 the and everyone, because when they say, we don't know, you know, you have to go to, um, what, what do you go that mountain, Udanshan, whatever, whatever it is, somewhere <laughs> in central China. And I said, if you don't know how, how am I going to go there? So immediately, I said, well, this is, what I was told is not what I'm seeing here, you know, China, and at that time, China was developing very fast. And immediately, I switched, I said, oh, China is developing very fast, and you know, I think from this moment, my entire life is going to be shaped by China, and I had to absorb, I had to change my perception, I had to, you know, I had to leave the China experience, basically that's what happened to me, so I was just leaving my own, you know, I was setting my own trend, but though the people who came after us, I think they thought, that's the way of life, you know, if you want to, you know, because they found us at a time where, you know, I was like one of the uh, student representatives, you know, like uh, representing foreign students in Guangxi, and basically that was my life, and it seemed like all the Laoshi, you know, would always talk about me and everything like that, you know? So everyone was like, okay, perhaps maybe this is how life is supposed to be here, but I never minded, you know, there were those who were trying to live their own lives, I was just living my own life. <laughs> <laughs> Ter- terrific. I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to skip over discussing uh, relationships and 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 your Chinese wife because I'd prefer her to be actually on the pod with you discussing that. But we, that is something that I hope to come back to at a future episode. What your life story is, living proof of Chinese technical transfer. However, one of the main criticisms of China-Africa relations is a lack of that same technology transfer as well as capacity building. What do you make of these criticisms and how can China-Africa relations be improved? Well, um, you know, the China story, more especially in Africa, is a two-faced story because the Chinese have got their own story to tell and the Africans have got their own story to tell. And again, within the Africans, it also depends on who you are speaking to. If you are speaking to a politician, 
who is in very good books with the Chinese will tell you a different story. And if you're speaking to perhaps the opposition who is not happy about China, they will tell you a different kind of story, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've always tried because without, you know, um, um, we, 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 without any empirical data, there is nothing that we can make out of whatever somebody is saying. Mm. So basically, you know, um, you, you know, uh, at my bachelor's degree, I did a dissertation which was also, you know, looking at um, what Africa can learn from China. And for my master's degree, again, I did something that was looking at you know uh, assessing you know the, the business operations of chinese companies in africa you know and then to come out with at least some empirical proof to say this is what is happening you know so uh, what i would say is i would rely mostly not on what people say on the street but basically on uh, the empirical data that i have managed to gather myself you know through interviews questionnaires and everything you know yeah so basically, I would say, you know, Chinese, you know, uh, 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 technology transfer is actually taking place and not taking place at the same time, mm. depending on perhaps the organization that you are dealing with. And, you know, um, uh, um, uh, it, it, and it's more of country specific, you know, because certain countries have managed to perhaps get a good deal from China and certain countries... They don't know how to get a good deal from China, you know. Yeah, I'll, I'll look at perhaps maybe some uh, an industry that is close to me because uh, initially I'm a civil engineer and I would look at perhaps construction. You know, there are so many, you know, Chinese companies that are operating in Africa right now, mm. a lot of them, you know. And I think they have... Um, they have managed to replace Western companies, like, you know, before we had British companies, French companies, and uh, later in the, in the 1900s and early 2000, we had South African companies dominating the African construction sector. But as uh, uh, beginning from early 2000 up to now, we saw that even South African construction companies can't match, you know, the Chinese. The Chinese just started coming in and, you know, um, uh, taking over everything, you know. Mm. Yeah. So when we look at that now, you realize that m more Chinese companies here doing construction should mean that more Africans getting trained, you know, mm. and, you know, having the uh, um, um, skills transfer and yeah, the technology spill over something like that. But, you know, empirical data have given that none of that is happening. Actually, where there are more Chinese companies doing construction, there is less technology to be transferred to Africans. That's the, I mean, that's that, the data that I have. That's very counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah that's, that is that is quite surprising. Yeah, 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 it's very, quite, I mean, it's quite surprising. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very simple because when you look at Technology transfer itself, you know, it has so many aspects of it. But you know, because I didn't, I, I'm not a, a, a professional researcher per se. So I looked at perhaps that I could easily understand. And you know, this is the thing. You know, when you talk of technology transfer, you are talking of transferring technology to somebody. You know, like if I'm a civil engineer, you know perhaps maybe uh, three years work experience. 
I can benefit from a civil engineer from China has got, let's say, 20 years work experience. Mm. Because the moment I start working side by side with him, I will start learning everything because I already have the foundation you know, where I can pick up and start learning from what he's doing. Now, the thing is, you know, China has decided to bring, you know, project managers from China to come and work in Africa. And then, you know, because of language barrier and cultural barriers, they have again decided to bring technicians and junior civil engineers to come and work side by side with these shifus because the shifus can't speak English. So they need to work with the Chinese, you know, a young Chinese who perhaps understands a little bit of English. Now, this younger Chinese is going to be helping the project manager to interact with the Africans, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, the Africans that they're dealing with are laborers, you know, people perhaps whose highest level of education is high school. Mm. They've got no basic foundation in civil engineering or project management. So which means everything that they're doing on site is just falling off. You see what I mean? Because if you don't understand what you're doing, you just, you're just being remote controlled. So at the end of the day, we are not getting new project managers learning how the Chinese project managers do things. We are just having laborers who are earning a minimum wage and sustaining their lives. So in short, we can say jobs have been created, but what sort of jobs? Jobs for low-level you know, people have been created but not jobs for perhaps trained African project managers who could learn and perhaps manage similar projects in future. Because, you know, my, 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 my research showed me that there are very few Chinese companies who are actually promoting Africans to take over certain jobs from them. So you find that, you know, those that came in the early 90s, they came with their own project managers. Up to now, they are still using Chinese project managers. Now, what does that show me? It shows me that there's been no process of transferring those skills to the, to, the, to the Africans, simply because they haven't got any coming closer to do, you know, to learn. You know, there's also another aspect to it, you understand? Sometimes, you know, from the interview that I, I did, you find that most of the engineers were saying, sometimes we get offers from the Chinese companies to do jobs, you know? But you find that what they're offering you can't sustain you. And basically the government might be offering more than what the Chinese is offering you, you know? So instead of you going to work for a private Chinese company or whatever Chinese company is, is here, you, you, you feel there's no job security and there's not so much money to sustain you because at the end of the day, you can't postpone your hunger for a later date when you've got experience, you know, because you, normally what is driving young people is the immediate needs. They need mm. money so that they can do things, you know. So they end up shunning Chinese companies and, you know, opting to go into government or perhaps even going into other fields that are paying more money. You know, I was surprised that most of the first relationship, Mandarin-speaking relationship managers that were working in the banks in Zambia, actually, some of them were civil engineers from China. What? So I'm that, sorry. You know, the that, yeah, what? because the scholarship that we had, oh my you know, gosh. 
we are, we, are, we are preferring more technical skills, you know. So when they came here and then there was need for relationship managers to manage Chinese, you know, um, uh, businesses in the banks, they ended up with civil engineers and agricultural engineers, you understand? So, that, 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 yeah, so that has been the, the, the problem from the, the, the research that I've conducted myself. So technology is taking place at the same time it's not taking place as we want it to be, you know. Basic skills, like maybe how to feed towels and everything, you still find that Chinese companies are bringing Chinese technicians, you know? And some of the excuses they're giving is that, you know, the Zambians or maybe the Africans, they don't work as, as good as the Chinese, you know? But again, why is it that? You know, they, they, it's all connecting back to the cultural differences, language barriers, because they feel that when they leave instructions with perhaps an African technician or something, they end up to doing something else. So I think for me, it's the skills of the project manager or is English language proficiency that is actually hindering the, 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 the technicians to do what they're supposed to do because they can't express themselves well. So if we change, if we brought in perhaps a project manager who is very proficient in English, I think the situation could be very, very different. So perhaps that's the picture that I could give right now. Thank you so much for that that assessment. And and you are particularly well situated to to, to let us know what the situation's like on the ground because you literally have done this and, and have and have seen firsthand how Chinese how Chinese operations work. And, and the sort of hiring and staffing decisions they make. And, and thank you so much for your very frank assessment. I was actually hoping that you might be a little more optimistic about, about um, the prospects for technical transfer. And it, it seems that right now there's just a vicious cycle of the people that are brought in just might not have the language skills or the ability to the cultural skills to deal with foreigners and at and ultimately they don't trust dealing with foreigners enough and would prefer to deal with only chinese and and it's just um a cycle that there it's hard to move what would you recommend for the zambian government to try and push things along so that chinese companies do end up learning to deal with and trust um, Zambian project managers. Yeah, you know, um, this issue of uh, technology transfer jobs and everything, I think it keeps popping up even during elections and everything. And I don't think it's only Zambians who have complained about it. You know, at some point, I thought maybe people are not just being, you know, uh, thankful to what China is doing. But you know, when I went and got empirical data, I realized that, you know, people had a point, you know? And it, it's, it's somehow is denting the image that China has in Africa, you know? Because people are, 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 are feeling like they're getting a raw deal out of it, which is not good because some of us wouldn't know what you know, China has been up to. And you know, most of the Chinese companies, they, 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 they you know, they, they are trying to do good. But you know, the cultural issues and language have become a restriction in what in how far they can go, you know? 
So for me, basically, what would help is where perhaps, like it is in the United States or in the United Kingdom, anyone who wants to come and work in the United States or in the United Kingdom, they need to have at least minimum, you know, language skills, you know, so that it's easier for them to work with the local people. Because without that, because that is one thing that is lacking when you look at yeah, um, the requirements for one to get a work permit in Zambia right now, language is not an issue. And it leaves us in the dark because the moment top leadership can't speak English, you know, it becomes very hard for them to deal with, you know, people who, who, who also can't speak their language. So in the end, because every leader wants to to perform, to show performance, to show mm. people about them that they are doing something. And, you know, I work for a Chinese company. When you are sent outside there, what people are looking at from the head office is your results. You understand? Mm. So you can't come here and you're having problems to deal with the locals because you can't express yourself better. And you just keep quiet and, you know, go back that because the people can, you know, they'll say, use your brain. <laughs> and then when they use their brain, they prefer to have their own people. Then it becomes easy for them, then they're going to have results. <laughs> wow. So, basically, language skills should be part of a requirement to, for somebody to get a work permit. Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for that that point. And that's something that, that is really interesting. I... We just did an episode with um, with a, a Chinese uh, person in Zambia, and and he was was talking about um, some of the staffing issues for Chinese institutions, Chinese um, enterprises in Zambia. And oh, man, maybe at some point I'll try to have you guys on the same pod and and work through some of these issues. But this is this is a complicated topic, and I'm so thankful that that that's a, um, you propose a solution right right here and now that that might offer uh that might offer a future path forward i want to shift gears and i want to talk a little bit about politics specifically about how i, I want to ask you how did you feel about the death of president michael sata and i what did you think about the china rhetoric that he used when he was campaigning and how he managed zambia china relations while he was in office? Well, you know, um, in African culture, when somebody dies, of course, everyone is supposed to be very sorrowful because, you know, death is a sacred thing. We don't know what happens to people who die. Mm. So regardless of whether somebody was a thief, your enemy or anything, you know, you just have to give respect to the dead, you know, mm. that's how it is. So all of us here in Zambia, we were very much saddened by the death of the president because, you know, he was our president, you know, and he really contributed to, you know, uh, the, the Zambian development scenario, politics and everything. So I personally was very sudden because I, I had a chance to meet President Sata four times in 2012. Wow. House. Wow. Yes. And, uh, you know, he was a very interesting man. He was always cracking jokes, <laughs> you know, because where I come from, I come from the east of the country and he comes from the north. 
and you know culturally it's the people from the east are cousins to the people from the from the northern part <laughs> so when when i went to state house that i think on two occasions you would laugh at my hair and you would tell me not to steal pencils from state house <laughs> because because that need to be his cultural cousin or something like that you know so him you know regardless of whether you are young or whatever he always had something for you he was always joking and and and, and things like that you know he was a special kind of um, of man he was an interesting man i would say mm. yeah i was quite saddened by his, his death knowing that i knew i, I you know i had maybe a, a personal interaction with him yeah um you know it, when it comes to talk about perhaps you know his um his time in opposition and uh, what you know he was campaigning for before he became president i think he was one person who was very critical about chinese investment and everything you know i don't know what sort of data he had you know that that was making him to talk about all those things but basically some of the uh, some of his rantings you know had a point in them because he was saying chinese are taking up our jobs and everything like that and i think for somebody who is aspiring to be a president you know those are some of the things that we should look at i think even in america the issue of jobs and stuff like that is very key that's why people have been saying you know all the jobs are being taken to china because the manufacturing industry is leaving the west and going to china and i think here basically what we see and what everyone's talking about perhaps is the construction jobs because china is now has now taken up about 80% of all construction jobs in the country and you know construction is one of uh, the industries that employ a lot of people so if you see you go to a construction site and all you are seeing as civil engineers and you know project managers are foreigners and the only laborers who are getting less than $100 per, per, per month then it, it, it has to worry you as somebody who is aspiring to be a leader and I think that's what you know mm -hmm. uh, Warred Sata when he was in opposition, but you know uh, when he became president, I think things changed a little bit. Like all of us we saw, the first people you hosted at State House were actually Chinese businessmen in Zambia. You know, so for me, I think he was trying to signal something to, to them to say, you know, I was very much against you, but I'm still willing to sit down with you so that we can find a solution. Mm. Because as an opposition leader, perhaps he had no solution. He was not in government. You know, he couldn't perhaps strike any deal with the Chinese. He was not in government. Somebody else was in government. So if somebody else was not willing to strike a deal with the Chinese, then he had to oppose everything that was Chinese, so that he could compare perhaps the government that was in place to do something about about what was happening. So when he became president, I think it starts so different because you can't rule out China when mm. China is investing so much money and everything. You know. You can't rule them out. So you had to find perhaps some common ground and, and have a discussion with them. And I think that's what he did. So he hosted them and his tone, I think, changed a little bit about Chinese, you know. So I don't know how far he went on, perhaps pushing for perhaps better deals for Zambian employees and, you know, stuff like that. But I think, you know, because of his stance in the opposition, certain Chinese companies were a bit skeptical about what he was going to do when he takes over power, you know. So certain investors, Chinese investors, started withholding or perhaps, you know, holding on to their investments in you know, uh, operations in, in, in the country because they 
it was a bit uncertain, you know. So basically, that was the scenario that was created. So for the past three years, I don't have specific data with me. I would say that, you know, maybe Zambia might not have realized the full potential of Chinese investment from China simply because at some point, you know, people felt SATA was anti-Chinese. So that, that's what I would say. Wow. Well, um, that's that's really interesting. And um, and you make a really good point about something that's been echoed uh, in the past about Sata's rhetoric in opposition versus once he's governing, he has to be able to work with uh, many stakeholders. I'm going to close by asking, what does the future hold for Zambia-China relations? And how do you fit into that future? I think uh, the prospects are still very, very bright, you know. I see a lot of things happening and, um, you know, depending on how um, the political, you know, situation is going to unfold, I think there's still a lot, you know, between China and Zambia relationship. I see a lot of, you know, um, more Chinese companies coming in and, you know, looking for investment opportunities and stuff like that. Because, you know, Zambia is a very, very peaceful country. And every Chinese that I've spoken to, they tell me that they came to Zambia because of uh, the peaceful end of Zambia. That is one of advantages that the country has the countries perhaps 18 they've got civil strife and then in Zambia it's okay. right now we are in a transition but you know but you can't oh we are all we are things in the newspapers and everything but so there's nothing to so how we are going to try now next year when we have a new event I think a lot more that uh, the two countries can work on. Yeah, basically said. And, um, you know, like I say, when I entered China in the first month, I knew that my life was going to be shaped by, you know, China. So basically, I do. We'll still have it on, on, on China, a lot of contacts in China, a lot, a lot of China, you know, number of things, you know, consultants and basically my competitive advantage is I understand, you know, it. I also know how to it here, you know. I think I still have things to do with China. Yeah, one of the things that that, that um, made me want to reach out to you is this incredible background that you have and this competitive advantage that you have and that you are someone who I think people should keep an eye on because what you can do in the China-Zambia relationship um, I think shows a, um, is going to be indicative of China-Zambia relations as a whole. Uh, I expect you to be <laughs> running very big projects soon. Um, do you have any additional thoughts before we go on to recommendations? Well, maybe not. Perhaps we could just to their recommendations. <laughs> okay. What do you recommend? I would 
recommend, you know, for, for people who want to do business in China, hmm. I think I would recommend Jakowski, you know, Managing the Dragon. It's a very, very interesting book because it, 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 it talks about, you know, how this guy trying to manage China, you know, the streets, and, you know, it was so excited about, you know, having population and the business opportunities, and he was trying to enter the sector in China. Book. It shows you how politics play in China, how business, you know, things. Terrific, terrific. Thank you so much for that recommendation. And I will put that down as something I should also check out myself. That's I, I'm always interested in reading um, those sorts of books. And before we sign off, how do people find you on yeah. the interwebs? You do, you, do you have a website or Twitter account that you would like to share with us? Okay. Basically, um, people can find me on uh, Facebook. You can, you can provide the link to my Facebook and you also have my WeChat. So basically, I use the same WeChat. I'm not. I'm on Twitter, but not so active on it um, because maybe I was too busy and I wasn't doing anything on it. But basically, <laughs> <laughs> I think Facebook and WeChat can do even QQ. So my 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 QQ number is the same number that I'm using for my WeChat. Perfect. Yeah, and and then the other. The other ones, just my email addresses and stuff like that. So, <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so very much. I myself can be found on cowriesrice.blogspot.com and my Twitter handle that Winslow underscore R. And as usual, I tweet a lot of China Africa stuff. Um, that is about it for today's episode. We would like to thank Kumbu for joining us this evening from Zambia. And I sadly kept him away from a delicious dinner that his wife was cooking so we thank you very very much Kumbu. Um, we'd also like to thank African Development Jobs. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Double Twist, and iTunes. Uh, we have also teamed up with WTND Community Radio from Macomb, Illinois to share a podcast. We'd also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song and thank you dear listener for giving us your time. Take care.